Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett coming to you on a Tuesday broadcast. So thankful that you're joining us today. And if you're a new listener, I want to thank you for joining us. And I hope that you'll be blessed by the message today. Hope for Your Heart is all about giving you encouragement from God's Word to encourage your spirits, to lift up your hearts. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. And uh, the Bible says that we are to guard our hearts because out of it are the issues of life. And uh, God is talking about the seat of our emotions when he's talking about the heart. And so I want to encourage you today uh, as we look at this very important subject. I'm talking to you today, and this is the second part of the message on four traps of being lost. Four traps of being lost. And we're looking at that very popular and famous prodigal son story found in Luke chapter 15. It's a fascinating parable that Jesus gave. And it's an amazing story because it's actually a trilogy of parables that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 15. And in this particular chapter, uh, Jesus talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. And then he talks about a lost son. Now, amazing, when we look at those three parables, there's a difference between this last parable that we see in the first two parables. For example, in the lost sheep, when the shepherd realized that the sheep was lost, he goes and he finds that lost sheep. That woman who lost that coin, she searches diligently. She gets a lamp out and she looks feverishly until she finds that coin. But when it comes to the lost son, nobody goes to find him. He uh, is at a point where he's taken the father's wealth and he's squandered his inheritance and, and he's lost all of his friends. He's lost his self-respect. He's living in a pig pen and he's, and he's wanting to eat the husk that the pigs eat, but nobody offered it to him. And it's interesting that nobody is going to rescue this son. He finally comes to his senses. And he says, you know, a lot of my father's servants have it better than I do. And uh, I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have his confession. And I'm going to say, would you take me back? Not as a son, but maybe as a servant, as a hired hand. Uh, maybe I could stay in the room of the garage, or maybe I could stay out in the barn. And, and I'll work my way back into the good graces of my dad. Well, the father sees the son coming off a great distance. And he goes and he, and he meets his son and he welcomes his son home. And he does something very unexpected. He throws a party for the prodigal son. Now, if you're a prodigal, you love to have those parties come your way because you were lost, but now you're found. You were dead, but now you're alive. Well, there was another brother in this story, the older brother. And this is really who Jesus is addressing in this parable. If you look at Luke 15 verses, verses 1 and 2, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were there. And so Jesus is giving these three parables, and he's wanting to deal with these Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were the religious people. Now, the Pharisees were that older brother. You know, there are four traps of being lost. So today, we want to look at this story through the eyes of the older brother. Now, imagine if you're trapped and you don't know how to get out of something. What in the world do you do when you're trapped? Now, so many times we try harder, and that may get us more into a trap. There's only one way to get out of a trap, spiritually speaking, and that is to totally surrender to Christ. We discover that this older brother was trapped four ways. Number one, he was trapped in the trap of comparison. He looked at his life and compared it to the life of his younger brother. He said, well, look what I've done. I'm much better than him. Look what he's done. And then he got in this comparison trap with what he was receiving in comparison to what the younger brother was receiving. And he says, look at all these years I have slaved away for you, dad, and you've never done anything for me. 
But this son of yours, when he comes home, this, this son that squandered your property, right, brought shame to the family name, uh, this son of yours, spending time with prostitutes, you have this party for him. You kill the fatted calf. We talked about the fact that all of us battle with comparing ourselves with one another. And it's actually a term that is coined and is called comparisonitis. This emotional sickness that we cannot stop through intellectual willpower. It is one of these things that we can only stop by going through a process of acknowledging the fact that God has given me so much and I can't enjoy what God has given me if I am comparing myself to others. I must repent for wanting to steal that glory for myself. And I must seek God's forgiveness for believing the lie that God is holding out on me. And then I must celebrate in the fact that God loves me unconditionally. Well, that's the first trap, the comparison trap. Secondly, we looked at the anger trap. It says in Luke 15, 28, that the older brother became angry. In other words, he gave into the anger that was right below the surface, kind of like those who give in to road rage. James 1.19 reminds us, brothers and sisters, that every one of us should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Well, why should we be slow to become angry? Because as God's children through faith in Christ, we must learn to control our anger. We must learn to keep it in check. James says that anger doesn't work. You know, practically speaking, anger is an ineffective tool for contributing to the righteousness of God. Letting your anger fly may be a great tool for getting your own way on a temporary basis. The world tells us that your anger can be used to manipulate, to intimidate those who are around us. Anger gives us that feeling that we are in control of other people in our lives. Now, I remember as my kids were growing up, occasionally I would lose my temper with them. And I could get them to obey because I was bigger than them and stronger than them and, and, and I had control and power over them. But that only worked temporarily. It made me feel better because finally things got quiet around the house. When I raised my voice loud enough and I got angry enough, they would be quiet. But you know, from a non-spiritual perspective, this anger comes at a high price. We lose our integrity. We lose the trust of others and our self-control when we live by anger. Now, James tells us there's a huge idea of how we can really overcome anger. You know, we were created for far more than simply getting the superficial things out of life. You know, part of our purpose as believers is to be used by God to help to contribute to His righteousness, to help accomplish His purpose in the world. You know, we have a glorious and an eternal purpose far greater than, than we can achieve through anger or through sin. We notice that the older brother quickly produced a false righteousness. Why do we call it a false righteousness? Because James tells us in James 1.20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Here are three verses from the book of Proverbs that talk about anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Here's the second one. Make no friendship with a man who is given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Here's the third one. A man of wrath stirs up strife, 
and no one given to anger causes others much transgression, or those given to anger, rather, cause much transgression. This is what Aristotle said about anger. He said anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to become angry with the right person and to the right degree, at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not within everyone's power. And it is not easy. So anger has its place. Anger is like pain. It is a trigger to say something is wrong. You know, sometimes we don't move on something that we should do until we get good and angry about it. And so God says, I'm going to lie to get angry about this so you'll finally get off your blessed assurance and do something. Now, we don't respond in anger, but anger oftentimes will be that energy that we need to propel us to do something that we would not have done if we didn't become angry about it. You know, we ought to be angry about sin. We ought to be angry if somebody messes with our family, right? Uh, There ought to be something that flares up with inside of us when somebody is messing with our kids, right? Uh, That's a righteous anger or a righteous indignation, and it drives us to do something to protect our kids or, or do something to encourage our kids. Well, we've talked about the trap of comparison. We've talked about the the trap of anger. Let's talk about the third trap, and I call it the exceptional trap. Luke 15, 29, the older brother answers his father and says, Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. Here he's setting himself up as I am the exceptional one. I am the gifted child. I am the best child. And as I was preaching this sermon in my church, I I asked our congregation, how many of you are firstborn children? You know, about two-thirds of our congregation raised their hand. I was shocked that we had that many firstborn uh, in that particular service on that Sunday morning. You know, generally the firstborn one is the one that's more responsible, is the one that has to take care of the younger siblings, uh, and I think about when uh, when our kids were born, our first son was uh, was Tyler, and and uh, and I remember, you know, back in the day, uh, you had to boil the bottles, and you had to boil the nipples that went on the bottles, and and my wife was, I mean, she was she was very much involved in making sure that everything was purified and there were no germs. And uh, and and if I dropped something, oh, you got to put that back in there, you got to reboil that bottle, you dropped it on the floor, and uh, so that's the first kid, and then then the second kid comes along. And uh, and you're, you're a little you're a little less cautious with the second kid. You don't you don't boil them for a whole three minutes. And say, well, they're in there about thirty seconds. That's good enough. And and, and then by the time the third or fourth child comes along, uh, that nipple falls off the floor. You lick it off and stick it back on the bottle and stick it in the kid's mouth, and you keep on going. And uh, and so that's what happens, right? So here we have this older son. He thinks he's exceptional because he's more responsible. He gets two thirds of the inheritance. When we think about this, every one of us, even if we are gifted, need other people. We all need others to help us succeed. Did you know that the world is not run by straight A students? The average person who is a CEO or a leader within a business is the C student. Why the C student? Because the C student has figured out how to get along with people. They have figured out how to use the system to get along with people. And so they traditionally are in leadership positions because they're really good with people. There's a book written by Malcolm Gladwell, and it tells the story of a guy by the name of Christopher Langdon. 
Now, you may have never heard of this person. It's kind of a shame that you never had because this guy is still alive today. And he has a staggering IQ of 195. Now, for perspective, Einstein's IQ was 150. Well, Langan, when he was in high school, could ace any foreign language test by simply skipping or skimming through a textbook. He'd sit down two or three minutes before an exam and just flip through a few pages and he would get a perfect score on any foreign language test. As a matter of fact, when he took his SAT, uh, he actually fell asleep at one point when he was taking the test. They woke him up and said, you got to finish taking the test. And he finished taking the test and he, he aced it. He aced the SATs, even though he fell asleep taking them. But there's one thing that he failed on. He failed to use his exceptional gifts, and he ended up working at a horse farm in rural Missouri. According to this book, Langan never had a community to help him capitalize on his gifts. He summarizes the story of Christopher Langan by saying in one sentence, Langdon had to make his way alone, and no one, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, not even geniuses, ever makes it alone. The older son was trying to make it alone. He was separated from the house of the father, refused to go in because he felt he was too good to go in. Now listen, if you get hung up on being exceptional, you will find yourself exceptionally lonely. You know, many years ago, the headline news told the story of baby Jessica. And if you're old enough to be alive in 1987, you may remember the story of baby Jessica, who was rescued from a well shaft in Midland, Texas. She was out as an 18-month-old baby walking around and and there was this well that had been covered over, and apparently whatever they used to cover over the shaft of this well had rotted out, and, and she stepped on this thing, and she fell down 22 feet into the shaft of a well. For 54 hours, we watched as they attempted to rescue her. Well, finally, Jessica McClure was rescued. She was rescued by a man who was 37 years old. Now, the reason they picked Robert O'Donnell to go down there and rescue little baby Jessica is because he was the skinniest guy on site. He was the only guy who could fit down that shaft to reach down to grab her and pull her back up. But you know, ever since that Jessica deal, his life really fell apart. Wherever he'd go, his brother Ricky would say that he kept talking about that incident, kept bragging about what he did. He couldn't stop talking about the exceptional job he did in rescuing Jessica. We know today Jessica has grown and she's married. She has a couple of kids. She still lives in Midland, Texas. Uh, she's a teacher of special ed in the school down there in Midland. She's doing very well. But unfortunately, eight years after rescuing Jessica, Mr. O'Donnell decided to take his life. You see, he looked at his life and he he felt like nobody appreciated his exceptional abilities. You know, whenever we see ourselves as pretty good, we misunderstood the gravity of sin and the, and the desperate need that we all have for grace. We place ourselves above others. We become their judges and we give them the power to disappoint us. A physicist friend uses this analogy. 
He says, each of us is like a light bulb. One shines at 50 watts of holiness. Another may only shine at 25 watts. Maybe the most stellar Christians, they can shine at 200 watts. But these comparisons become trite and very insignificant in the presence of the sun. In the face of God, our different levels of piety are puny and meaningless. It makes no sense to compare ourselves with one another because we all are much more alike than we are different. You see, that older brother was convinced that he was the gifted one, the anointed one, the high achiever in his family. He had an attitude of arrogance. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he tells us what God did to him so that he could curb that attitude of arrogance. He says, you know, to keep me from being conceited, because of the exceptional nature of these revelations, a thorn was given to me and placed in my body. It was Satan's messenger to keep on tormenting me so that I would not be conceited. You see, Paul recognized because of the exceptional nature of the revelations that God had given him that he could battle arrogance. So God says, I'm going to allow Satan to buffet you, to torment you, to keep you humble. I mean, after all, you think about all that Paul has done. I mean, he wrote 12 or 13 books in the New Testament, started a bunch of churches, and and even to this day is considered the best Christian that ever lived outside of Jesus himself. And, And so he could have that arrogance about him. But also, Paul had an attitude of humility. And I love how he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. He says, for it is God alone that has given you life through Jesus Christ. He gives all the glory back to Christ. He says that God showed us a plan of salvation. It was he who made us acceptable to God. It was Jesus who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and he made us holy. He gave himself to purchase our salvation. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. Jesus made it possible for us to be considered pure and holy. As the scripture says, if anyone is going to boast, let him boast only on what the Lord has done. Oh, my friends, if you are battling this attitude of exceptionalism, thinking you're better than everybody else, I want to remind you that the very breath in your nostrils was given to you by God. That heart that beats within your chest is a gift that is given to you by God. Your salvation is a gift that is given to you by God. We must walk in humility because of the tremendous gift that God has given us. We are jars of clay, and living within us is the Spirit of God. Well, maybe today you're listening to the broadcast and says, you know, I really don't battle this comparison trap or or the anger trap or I really don't think I'm that exceptional. I'm just your average Joe Schmo. Maybe this last trap is what you battle. I call it the avoidance trap. I'm going back to that older brother. It says that he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You know, avoidance in our lives is often the sign of conflict. In Proverbs 29, 22, it says that an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. And when we go down that trap of anger and we become hot-tempered and then we stir things up, oftentimes we will avoid those people that we had conflict with. Avoidance is often a sign of conflict. You know, inside, conflict can't stay for very long. It eventually comes out. 
It's a like a pressure cooker. It can only handle so much pressure, and then the lid's going to blow off. You know, avoidance is also a sign of conviction. We avoid things because we don't want to be convicted. You know, I've got a dear friend, Greg. I love Greg. He's an awesome guy. You know, for almost 20 years, Greg stopped coming to church. And the reason he started coming to church is because he felt like he was not worthy. And then we would come to church, he felt on a conviction. And finally, he decided to come on back. He repented of his avoidance. He repented of his sin. And today, he is running our Celebrate Recovery ministry. You know, there are five types of avoidance. See if you can identify any of these in your life. Number one is what I would call situational avoidance. That is physical absence. In other words, I'm not going to go to that person because somebody else isn't there, and that's exactly what the older brother was doing. I'm not going to that party because that son of yours is in there. I'm not going to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites in there. I'm not going to your group because I don't like a particular person in that group. So we physically are absent. We, we are avoiding a place where somebody else is. The second type of avoidance is called cognitive avoidance. This is a mental absence. In other words, I'm not going to think about it. We would call it denial. Things like, oh, there's no problem here. Uh, I don't want to think about it. So if I don't think about it, it can't be a problem. The third type of avoidance is what I would call the protective avoidance, which is an emotional type of avoidance, usually driven by fear. I mean, this is the type of person that has a smile on their face, but they're filled with fear. They're filled with anxiety. They're wanting to put on this face to, to, to those that are around, like, hey, I got everything all together. Everything's fine in my life. But you know, inside, they are falling apart. And then there's a somatic avoidance. That's where we're present in body, but not in spirit. There's a spiritual absence. I'm not going to be giving. I'm not going to be praying. I'm not going to be serving. Uh, I may be there physically, but I'm not there spiritually. I'm not connecting. And then last, there's a substitution avoidance. And this is a psychological absence where we are so self-absorbed. We are appearing busy, busy, busy all the time, filling my life with a sense of self-importance. I'm too occupied to be concerned with such trivial matters. You ever talk to somebody and say, hey, how you doing? And you say, man, I'm busy, super busy, 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 busy. You know, I love to blow people's minds sometimes. They'll call me and say, hey, how you doing, Pastor? What are you up to? I said, you know what? I am doing absolutely nothing. I'm just hanging out, right? And that always blows their mind because they expect me to say, well, I'm, so, I'm really busy. What do you need, right? Uh, but I said, no, nah, I'm, just, I'm just hanging out, man, just enjoying life, just cruising down Interstate 64, having a good old time, listening to my Christmas music in the middle of October. Yeah, good things are happening, right? And, uh, and so, you know, the psychological self-absorbed appearing to always be busy so I don't have to deal with conflict in my life. Hey, listen, dads, I want to get your attention, right? Maybe that's how you're operating your home. I was talking to a friend of mine. I was so sad that he and his wife, after 34 years, are calling it quits. And he told me, he says, you know, I, I didn't realize there was a problem. And I told this guy, I says, well, I came to you some time ago. And I says, I think that you're, you're too self-absorbed and that you're, you're, you're not dealing with some things in your family, in your home. And, and I says, you're, you're just kind of checking out. And, and then instead of dealing with things, you're, you're hiding from it. And I, and I even gave him an illustration. I says, I says when you go home... You want peace at all costs. 
So you tell your wife to take care of the kids. You tell your wife to take care of all the conflict. When it comes to spiritual matters, you say, well, she's more spiritual than I am. Let her take care of that. And your attitude was, just let me go upstairs and zone out and watch ESPN. And you just wanted to be absent from all the things that cause conflict. You avoided issues in your life, and you've done it for a long time. And all of a sudden, you're wondering why in the world your marriage is falling apart. Now, this week, with the grace of God, I want to challenge you to tackle an area in your life that you have been avoiding. Pray for the right timing. Pray for the right words, the right attitude, the right resolution. You know, that older brother had known in his heart, just if he had known all that the father had done for him, he would have said, I am just as self-centered and a grief to my father in my own way as my brother is. I have no right to feel superior. Then he would have had that freedom to give his brother that same forgiveness that his father had given him. But the older brother doesn't see himself that way. His anger is a poison of his own making. So if you need some help with this matter, I want to pray for you. Feel free to call me, 252-267-2365. John Calvin said this, Love is the beginning of religion. He who would obey God must first love him. You see, that older brother couldn't obey his father because he despised his father. He went through the motions of obedience, but his heart was far from him. Kind of like Isaiah said, these people draw nigh unto God with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Today, if you want to come on back home, let's pray and give me a call, 252-267-2365. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We would love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.